Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of prisons. This topic was recommended to us through our question box on our website by listener Robbie Toodle. Thank you, Robbie. And I think the best way to approach the question of how prisons will change in the future is to start with why. So why do societies, why does any society put people in prison? You know, why are there millions of people living in cages in a country like the United States? And I've been fascinated by this question for my whole life. And I even remember when I was in kindergarten, the teacher asked everyone to write down two things they wanted to learn about in school that year. And I wrote down sharks and prisons. (laughs) (laughs) And the teacher was like, was like, actually called my mom and was worried about me. Like, why is he interested in sharks and prisons? But when you think about it from a kid's perspective, it's like, damn, there's these monsters in the oceans that can eat you. And there is are some people who are put in cages for, in some cases, their whole life. So it's pretty startling when you think about how massive uh, incarceration is at, at scale. And of course, in the U.S., it's more massive than almost anywhere. Right. You know, the U.S. is only about 4% of the world's population. And yet we have 25% of the world's prison population. So yeah. that's that's massive. Um, but first, I think just, you know, going back to the question of why, it seems to me like there's really five reasons why any society would put people in prison. One is just simply to keep dangerous people away from the rest of society. So you've got someone that's going around murdering people, you put them in a cage so they can no longer murder people. There's yeah. also the reason of deterrence. If you give really harsh punishment to one murderer, that may deter other murderers from committing similar crimes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, likewise, a- another another reason is just punishment for punishment's sake, or you could say for retribution. And this goes all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi, which is, you know, an eye for an eye. If someone pokes out your eye, you have the legal right to poke out their eye in return. Almost like they owe a debt to you and you're taking your debt back with their physical mm-hmm. body or their freedom or something else. And, yeah. you know, there's the, another reason that's really worrisome is a tool of repression used by authoritarian regimes to imprison their political opponents or even perceived mm-hmm. political opponents. And we yeah. see this a lot in China and Russia where, you know, in Russia, you know, a lot of doctors have been falling out of windows recently and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe doctors who had less grievous offenses find themselves in prison for decades without a trial. Um, And then the final reason, which is really what should be the most important reason, is rehabilitation. People Mm -hmm. have gone on a wayward path and they need to be set back on the right path so they can reintegrate into society and they can become a healthy functioning member again. So Mm -hmm. I want to get a sense for you of given all of these various reasons that different societies have, what has the U.S.'s philosophy been towards prison? So I think there's two different answers here. There's the question of what the U.S. says that they're doing and what it Mm -hmm. seems like the U.S. is actually doing. And what it says it's doing is it's getting people off the streets, making the United States safe for the rest of the country. It doesn't seem like there's much of a focus even publicly on rehabilitation, at least from what I've seen. It's more like we just need to make the general public safer by getting these people off the streets. But what seems to happen and what the general rhetoric around like people, particularly in the people that are um, they're in prison for drug offenses, for example, it seems to be just retribution like we just need to punish these people because they're bad they are Mm -hmm. not following the laws and all of these things and this kind of led me to the question of there's like a difference between legality and morality Mm -hmm. so like some things are legal and immoral some things are moral but illegal and i think there's just like this weird dichotomy between the two and the u.s is stuck in this system of like if something is not legal and someone breaks that law then we need to punish them 
And that's, totally. that's what I've seen. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the U.S. as well. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the morality question is interesting because there are, you can imagine cases where, for instance, if, like, I know someone, I'm not going to say who it is, but a very good friend of mine was in India and a corrupt police officer there tried to assault his girlfriend, sexually assault his girlfriend when they pulled them over at a traffic stop. And so my friend, like, basically beat this police officer, like, really badly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that seems like the just thing to do. He was saving a damsel in distress who was his girlfriend from someone Mm -hmm. who was clearly in the wrong morally. And yet he had to go through a tremendous amount of stress in the Indian legal system because if you harm a police officer, that is a major perceived threat. Uh, to society. And similarly in China, I was watching this video of this American who was there and they had a, he was in a taxi cab with his wife and his wife was like, is like a Chinese national, uh, Mm -hmm. but he's an American and they were in a cab and they ran out of cash. So they had to go to an ATM. And when they were going to the ATM to get the money, the cab driver thought that they were just trying to like ditch out and not pay. And so he got Mm -hmm. into this, he actually like slapped the girlfriend because he was so worked up. And so the American boy or or husband punched the, just a single punch, punched the cab driver. And then, uh, you know, he ended up realizing that China really treats any foreigner who uh, takes any sort of violence against a Chinese person very seriously, way more seriously if it's like two Chinese people get into a fight. And thankfully, because his wife was from China, they actually ended up having her sign a a document that said she was the one who actually hit the cab driver, even though obviously like that's not what happened. And she wouldn't have even been strong enough to like hurt the cab driver as much as he was hurt. Yeah. Um, But that was the only way that he was able to get out of there without being in jail for like years. And oh my so you can see that that sort of approach is much more like, okay, what's our society rule? You know, not caring so much about the individual or the intention or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But America is a, a very different case. Like, you know, you, you actually sent me this tweet about what the fuck happened in 1971. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So th- there's this incredible change in so many trends that started in 1971. Yeah. 1971 was the year that Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. And mm-hmm. it's essentially the year that the people at the very top hacked the system for their own benefit and yeah. to the detriment of the vast majority of Americans. Like you see inflation skyrockets, house prices skyrocket, mm-hmm. the cost of universities skyrocket, the prison population skyrockets. Yeah. The war on drugs kind of started right around that time as well, right? Exactly. And crime has fallen pretty steadily across every civilized society, uh, you know, pretty much the same for all countries. Like if you look at the U.S. versus Canada, for instance, very similar crime rates over time. But while Mm -hmm. Canada's incarceration rate is pretty stable, the U.S. increased 7x from 1970s until today. Yeah, and there's some really messed up stuff that goes into this these numbers. And here, let me just like yeah, talk it's... about some of these because um, there's a lot of the talk is about the prison system, like the state prisons and all of this. But one thing that's often overlooked are local jails, where essentially there's like a county jail where um, you know maybe people that had minor misdemeanors are uh, being held. So just for a few numbers, there are roughly 750K people being held in local jails at any given time. But like 65 to 75%, depending on uh, how you count it, so we can say the low end of 65% of those people have not been convicted at all. So these are basically people that are being detained uh, pre-trial mm-hmm. and just couldn't make bail. So of course this totally targets the poor 
And it also keeps them in a cycle of not being able to do anything. They can't. So imagine you're a person and you're like trying to stay above water and you had this parking ticket from the past and then you get pulled over again. Well, they can detain you and throw you in jail because of that. And if you can't make bail, you might be in jail for days, weeks, and you're obviously going to lose your job in this case. And it's just like this vicious cycle that cascades and people, it just throws people into the system and then they can never get out. It's almost yeah. like credit card debt. Yeah. You get swallowed by the bureaucracy and you know, anyone who's been through the legal system knows that it takes so long to do anything. You're constantly waiting for your next court date and, it's just like, if you don't have the money to hire good lawyers, then you will just be like years of your life could be swallowed up in this system before you even get a fair trial on whether or not you actually did the deed that they're saying you did. And, yeah. and I was listening to this, uh, this TED talk of this guy who has worked in the US prisons system for a very long time. And he says like, the main reason is really philosophical. When someone gets arrested, and they go to J and they go to you know central booking. The first thing they do is they interview that person extensively, and they look mm -hmm. into their background. They look at their criminal history. They interview them. They try to they basically try to determine should this person go to a minimum, medium, or maximum security prison. And it's all mm -hmm. about the likelihood of them causing more trouble while in prison. But the way mm -hmm. they should do it is think about what is the type of rehabilitation that this person needs to become a healthy member of society again? So if someone came in because they were, a, you know, because they were clearly high on crack and like smashing windows or something, mm -hmm. then this guy should go to a corrections office or, or a facility that has resources to help him deal with addiction and yeah. actually overcome those those struggles. Or if you have mm -hmm. someone who is in there for domestic abuse, you should provide them with therapy and counseling. Or if someone's yeah. in there because, you know, like you said, they couldn't pay their parking ticket or they couldn't pay alimony or something. Maybe you give them classes uh, for how to, you know, have more uh, skills so they can become employable again and actually be mm -hmm. able to provide for themselves. But in yeah. America, it's not about making someone healthy to rejoin society. It's about punishing them. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more mm -hmm. you treat someone like a criminal who needs to be watched over and doesn't deserve any rights and, you know, no one mm -hmm. should care about them, then the more they're likely to commit crimes again. Yeah. And, and, and that, just to put okay. a number to it, 67% of U.S. prisoners uh, commit a crime within three years of being released, whereas in Norway, wow. it's only 20%. Yeah. Wow, that's in, it's really interesting to contrast Norway and some of these Scandinavian countries that have like notoriously rehabilitative uh, prison systems to the US. Mm -hmm. And one of the main differences is they treat in these other countries that do rehabilitation well, they treat prisoners like humans. Yeah. And in the United States, we tend to have prisoners being treated like animals basically you're stripped down you're given this jumpsuit and like you see it in in videos all the time and there are also people that have gone undercover as uh prison guards into like privately held state prisons and the one of the issues is that prisons have similar laws that um like the meat factories do um or like factory farming companies do because um they can essentially get protection from media which i didn't know about until researching so it's like hard to get information on what it's like in a prison so you have to like sneak in there's like undercover mm. and maybe some some prisons are a little bit more open but especially private prisons are um, right very closed off to media and other people so well the, the question of private prisons is important because this had you know when we talk about you know what the fuck happened in 1971 <laughs> a lot of people made a lot of money on private prisons and mm -hmm. guess what else happened after 1971 you already mentioned it, it's the war on drugs but essentially mm -hmm. 
what that what the whole rise in incarceration did for people at the top is it allowed them to say i was tough on crime i implemented these zero policy zero tolerance policies you know these mandatory minimum sentences we put more people in jail than ever before and look the crime rate is falling so therefore it must be working never mind that the crime rate's falling in canada too even though they haven't increased their incarceration rate at all mm-hmm. and, and and so you can see how this sort of like you know tough cowboy mentality that's part of the american ethos can work itself into the prison system where it feels like you're doing a good thing like rounding up these outlaws and i'm the toughest sheriff in town and so mm-hmm. I, like a lot of that mentality created this cycle where there was a you know it was beneficial for politicians to be tough on crime and then they would work with these private prisons that was beneficial to them because in some states it costs as much as a hundred thousand dollars a year per prisoner just to keep someone mm-hmm. in prison and then they return you know like i said 67 percent of them return within three years so they call it this revolving door where once mm-hmm. you're in this system it's really hard to you know return to normal civilized life mm-hmm. yeah imagine what would happen if you just rehabilitated these people and then they never came back in the cost would be so much lower and yeah it's such an issue like the private prisons thing really bothers me particularly because one of their main ways of making more money is by cutting costs and they don't necessarily have the same standards that a public government-run prison would so one of the main complaints is people don't get the medical treatment they need and it's Mm -hmm. not like they're living in a very sterile place or a very healthy place. So people get diseases all the time. And it's there's a lot of like malnutrition and it's just a huge problem. And so I saw one story to your point where this woman had a C-section while she was in prison and they didn't even give her antibiotics. Instead, they put sugar on the open wound which apparently is something they used to do in like, like World War One time before there was antibiotics. What <laughs> would that even do? Give the bacteria food? I, like, how I don't does know. That even... <laughs> it was on uh, Colbert. He, he did a section about it. Oh, but yeah, I mean, they are incentivized to just cut costs however they can. And it's run like a business. You cut costs as much as you can. You increase mm. the pay that you get from the government. You, mm. you know, you, you elbow to elbow the senator you know so that they pay a little bit more to you and then they can look good like they're tough on crime. Um, mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, it does seem like the trends are changing. So since yeah. 2008, the prison population has gone down. The incarceration rate has gone down in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And there has been this movement of criminal justice reform. So I don't yeah. want to paint this all as negative. It was very negative up until about 2008. And yeah. Obama was, you know, I think he deserves a lot of credit for bringing this movement into the mainstream along with a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. Trump has also been fairly good on criminal justice reform. So mm-hmm. things are moving in a good direction, but we're so far from where we need to be about just the underlying philosophy of what the purpose of a prison is and how it should function, you know, so mm-hmm. that it's optimal for society and for individuals. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So um, maybe we should talk a little bit more about what a properly functioning system would look like. We didn't. Totally. I don't know if we've yeah. talked enough about like what what Norway is doing, what Germany is doing, what some of these other countries are. Doing. Yeah, totally. So let's start with Norway. So Norway has one of the lowest recidivism rates in the world. It has only you know twenty percent of prisoners who are released are you know commit a crime again. And part of why they've been so successful is that they really focus on not breaking your ties to the rest of society and gradually giving you more and more freedoms until you pretty much just have all your freedoms back and you're back into society. So let's say you commit, you know, a heinous crime in Norway. You know, it's let's say you get it's like a road rage accident and then you like kill someone like pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you would do is you would start in their maximum security prison, but they don't call it maximum security. They call it like 
you know, more than five year prison. They do it by how long your sentence is. So you, mm-hmm. so right away, you don't have this mentality of, oh, I'm in maximum security. I got to go beat up someone so all the other prisoners know how tough I am. It's not like mm-hmm. that at all. And their prisons have lots of natural light. There's lots of glass so you can get natural light and see the outdoors. It feels more like a junior college campus than it does like a prison. Each prisoner sort of gets their own room where they have like a desk, you know, they can use a phone, they can talk to their family. Um, And then basically over time, if you have good behavior, you can gradually, gradually get more freedom. So you move into lower and lower, you know, security prisons where eventually Mm -hmm. you can spend a few hours outdoors during the day. And one of the most successful policies that they have implemented which is what they are using more and more nowadays, is actual electronic monitoring. So when you get Mm. to a certain level of freedom, you can basically go about your normal life and you have like an anklet or a bracelet around you so they can track where you are and you're allowed, you know, you can go home, you can go go to work, you can go to school, you can go to wherever your, like whatever your normal routine is, you're allowed to go there. But guess mm-hmm. what? You can't go anywhere outside of that. So you can't go to like, you know, the tough neighborhood where you used to hang out with your, you know, mm-hmm. friends, gang members right. or whatever. Um, yeah. So I really like that approach because you're allowing people to create a new identity gradually by treating them in the way that you want them to behave rather than treating them like a criminal. And, and there's mm-hmm. this saying that I keep thinking about, which is that hurt people hurt people. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you think about like, let's say you have a dog that bites someone. And then in one case, you have the dog interact with other dogs in a loving way. You know, maybe you give it like timeouts or something if it does something bad and you give it treats when it does something good. And then that's like the Norway system with mm-hmm. the U.S. system you put the dog in solitary confinement and kick it and like give it scraps and like tell it how awful it is. Which dog do you think is going to be better once it returns to society? (laughs) It's like, it's like so brutally obvious. And yet we can't seem to do the proper prison reforms. Yeah. It seems like a lot of this is just like the human instinct of they did something bad. We need to punish them. Like there's Mm -hmm. just this, deep-seated feeling that I think a lot of people have that is these people need to be punished and it's like sometimes for me like when I'm thinking about like serial killers for example like my first instinct is man that person needs to be punished like it Mm -hmm. it, and it's that's not very innate to human yeah it's just something that that I think without really thinking deeper like if I don't if I don't have a more enlightened view of it, that's where I'm just going to stay is this person needs to be punished. I hate this person. Like that's kind of it. So, well, well, you can actually use that for good. And part of Norway's system is actually based on retributive justice or restorative justice. Hmm. And so basically that's the notion that, you know, in the U S like, let's say I commit a crime, it would be Hmm. the state versus Matamor. It would not be like, like, let's say I like, you know, punt, beat you up. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be Matamor versus Justin. It would be Matamor versus the state of California. Huh. And okay. that's how our legal framework is in the U.S. But if you go somewhere that has a restorative justice system like Norway, then it would be Matamor versus Justin. And Justin gets to decide what the right punishment is with, uh, for me within reason, like there's a minimum mm-hmm. and a maximum, but within those, those, uh, parameters, Justin may say like, you know what, it'd be enough if Matamore just apologized to me, or, you know, it would be enough if he did a hundred hours mm-hmm. of community service and paid for my medical bills. You know, everyone yep. has different needs mm-hmm. for what it would feel like to achieve justice. And yep. by making it more personal, you're able to, you know, not have people thrown away in jail for years and years in a very impersonal way. And you're able to actually heal a lot of the ties that are, you know, heal a lot of the wounds that are in society that mm-hmm. in, a, in an impersonal system wouldn't typically get resolved in the same way. I see. 
Yeah, I actually really like that a lot. I didn't know that um, was one of the things they did. I wonder how easy it would be to change that in the U.S. And I actually wonder how easy it would be to change any of this in the U.S. Like how how deep-seated are the different rules in our system? Like can is like could we use this crazy situation we're in right now, like the COVID situation, to maybe pass some of these laws to make yeah. things more humane? I don't know. I, I think really there's there's never been more hope for the prison system changing because of what's mm -hmm. going on with COVID. Mm -hmm. And we're realizing that having tons of people packed tightly into seven foot by 10 foot cells mm -hmm. is just not a good situation when you're dealing with a virus that, you know, spreads at as of high of a rate as it does. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and especially, you know, Kim and Kanye have made this a big, a big point. Um, you know, that, that is important to them. So I do think there's a lot of momentum with changing the prison system, but the question is, will it change enough and will it change quickly enough? And will the people who are currently in prison get a second chance? And, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many interesting parameters when you look at the data. One thing that's interesting is that people tend to age out of crime. So, if you're like, even if let's say you're 18 years old, you're in with like a really bad crowd because you grew up in a bad neighborhood. And the only way you could really protect yourself was to have like a group of friends that all watched out for each other. Mm -hmm. And then you end up like, you know, beating someone up too badly and they end up dying. And then so, you know, now you're a violent, convicted murderer who's an adult. You're 18 years old. Typically, that's mm -hmm. it. You'd be locked away for the rest of your life. Um, but, you know, people can change a lot over time, especially when yeah. you consider the brain of an 18-year-old versus the brain of an adult. And the recidivism, rec recidivism rates for people in their 50s or older is in the single digits. People just don't commit crimes mm. when you're an older person. And it's like, mm. and also, like, when you think about human nature, it's so ingrained in the male brain to be ready for battle when you're an adolescent mm -hmm. that yeah. it's hard to really like punish people for that as intensely as we have been without giving them mm -hmm. any chance for personal growth to grow beyond that. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I think that there's so many systemic issues like from the ground up, like that little scenario you described of, a guy that's hanging out with a group of friends to be in a protected situation, that's really common. And mm -hmm. I think it should be far less common than it is that people need to actually join a little gang or with a group of people to protect each other in these inner cities where there is a bunch of violence like that. That shouldn't be a thing in the first place. And it almost seems like criminal justice reform needs to start from the very bottom up like th mm -hmm. there needs yeah. to be a sort of preventive approach well, i was going to say the biggest determining factors on whether someone goes to prison or whether they return to prison is if they are uneducated mm -hmm. if they don't have family ties those are the biggest mm -hmm. ones so i think educate oh and employment is the other one mm -hmm. so if you have a job you have family ties and you're well educated you're very unlikely to spend many years in prison if if any yeah. so mm -hmm. if, when we think about how to solve this problem from the bottom up like you said it's clear that giving people proper education not only before they go to prison but also while they're in prison so they yeah. can become more educated and not isolating them from the rest of society. So letting them talk to their family on a regular basis and mm -hmm. helping them get skills so they can actually contribute to society and gain some fulfillment uh, through that, through work. All of those are things that should be like the you know primary focus of the correction mm -hmm. system. And they're like yeah. an afterthought. It's like you're sprinkling this this uh, seasoning on a steak of punishment and it's just not yeah. enough. Like, Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And, and it seems like the work thing that you said is actually 
Um, it ties back to what we were saying about the jails and the like this whole probation cycle. Because we talked about jails, but one of the things I didn't mention is like that's just the jails and prison are just one part of the overall correction system. There's more to it. There's a probation and um, it, it's so there's basically these situations where there are, are private probation companies that again it's it's another. Uh, private issue when it probably shouldn't be a private issue but these companies basically contract with local governments and they can um, monitor the people that have misdemeanor crimes and basically keep them in this cycle so they get these monthly fees they get all of these fines and probationers are again locked in this cycle and if they have too many fees then they go to jail and it's again mm -hmm. this never-ending cycle yeah. and there are far more people in this probational system than there are in the uh jail system which is um i think yeah. like three three million people are just constantly in and out of the system and i'd also one of the other numbers is there's 10 million people that go to jails or there's 10 million admissions to jails every year. Yes. Some of those people make bail and stuff, but of the people that make or that don't make bail, those people probably lose their jobs, which is like you said, one of the determining factors of if someone is going to go to jail, like if they're not employable, they're probably going to have to make money some other way. Maybe that's drug trafficking or something else. And it's, it's just a crazy system that we're in that basically pushes people down further. Also, if you're a convicted criminal, you're not eligible for welfare. You can't vote. Yeah. You Many of these assistance programs that the government has, you're not even eligible for. And at the same time, you might have a felony on your record and you have to check that box when you're applying for a job. So mm -hmm. it's so much harder for you to provide for yourself and your family if you've mm -hmm. been to prison. So I wonder if like, even if there was UBI and it, it was extended to prisoners, like maybe, I mean, you know, if, if we had to start somewhere where they have maybe a lower UBI, so there's some disincentive built mm -hmm. in, but still you have enough where you don't have to rob people or, uh, you know, traffic in, in drugs in order to make a living. Mm -hmm. Like even that would be so huge. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about how there shouldn't be these cases in society where you feel like you have to band together and act tough just so you can feel safe. And mm -hmm. prison is one of those places. That's why yeah. people say prison is criminogenetic. It actually perpetuates crime because when you're wow. in prison, you're with a lot of other prisoners and there's this hierarchy and the guards don't really care what happens amongst the prisoners that much. And so you yeah. often end up becoming more hardened and are therefore more likely to harm others once you leave mm. prison. So it's just like the whole incentive is, is pretty backwards. Yeah, I guess I did actually see a couple of stories where people actually tried to get to prison because it was a place to sleep inside and there was guaranteed food and that's better than being homeless. Like... Can you imagine? I don't know. It's it seems like we're living in an alternate reality where that kind of stuff exists because it's not on my day to day consciousness. And I think that's the problem is like people that aren't in the system just don't think about it that much. Yeah. And and we forget about these people that the system has totally thrown by the wayside and it's just not on the top of our mind. Yeah. pretty much ever until we do research and realize how messed up the system actually is. Yeah. So I want to give one little ray of hope and then we can get into the future scenarios and the worst case. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the ray of hope is that there are some therapies that are being shown to be really effective, even with our current prison system. And mm -hmm. in particular, psychedelic therapy has been really effective. So just to give one study that you guys can look up if you're interested to learn more, there's the Concord prison experiment. And in this experiment, they found that prisoners who were given psychedelic mushrooms in a clinical setting mm -hmm. 
went the recidivism rate for those people went from 64% as the control group to 25% for the group that received psychedelic therapy. Wow. Do you know if that was like a one-time treatment or I know a lot of these are one-time treatments. Like it's yeah, just this take was, it one time and it's all good. Yeah, this was from uh, 1961 to 1963, and I believe it was. It was a one-time in a ther in a you know in a therapy mm -hmm. setting where they were given psilocybin mushrooms and they had a much lower recidivism rate. And you know, part of like it's like okay, well, why does that work? It's because it allows you to get out of your current thought patterns. There are so many negative thought patterns that get deeply ingrained the more times you go through them. So if you have this identity of, I'm a screw up, I've done all these horrible things, I deserve what's happened to me, I'm never going to be worth anything, like all of these negative thought patterns, sometimes it takes a totally new perspective for you to get out of that and look at it from a meta level and realize like, why am I being so hard on myself? I'm kind of like, you know, I, I didn't choose my environment. I, there's all these circumstances that have brought me to where I am today. And rather than bemoaning them, I can actually take life into my own hands and look at the world a little bit differently and improve myself. And that's what psychedelics allow you to do, just like how meditation can help to that, that yeah. degree, therapy can help, job training, anything where you're creating a new identity for yourself and yeah. it, it, like i was just reading the book atomic habits by james clear have you read mm -hmm. that book no i haven't i've heard of it though yeah so this there's one part of it that really sticks out to me where he says that the most important thing like let's say you're trying to lose weight it's not how long you're in the gym or how arduous your workouts are it's just that you show up every single day so even if you have a rule where you never spend more than five minutes in the gym, but you go every single day, you're casting a vote for your new identity every time you go to the gym. So over time, you start to think of yourself as the type of person that goes to the gym regularly, and then it becomes easy to spend more than five minutes at the gym and do a little bit more uh, challenging exercises. So yeah. it's, it's the same thing when you're trying to change your behavior from that of a criminal to someone who is actually able to play the game by the rules, find fulfillment, mm -hmm. achieve success, and live a good life. Yeah, well, I like that ray of hope. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a good, uh, good pre-chaser to our worst case scenarios, maybe. <laughs> totally. Let's get into it. All right, so what do you think about the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. The interesting thing about the future scenarios is that they're similar in how they work, but they're very different in the goal of, of uh, the system. Mm. Okay. So, have you ever heard of a panopticon presence? No, what is it? So, it's this concept that was originally thought of in the 18th century by Jeremy Bentham. And it's this concept where you have essentially this circular prison that has many different floors and there's one way glass. So the prison guard can look into any of the cells, but hmm. the prisoners can't know if they're being watched or not. And the whole design of this was so that one guard could watch like a thousand prisoners and even though he couldn't really watch all the prisoners at the same time, because they don't know whether or not they're being watched, they have to behave themselves. Mm -hmm. So okay. this is like the 18th century version of like Big Brother within the prison system, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing now is that with technology, we can truly do like a digital panopticon in every corner of society. And... So I think that a panopticon could be good or bad. So if you think about like, you know, in a good case, it's this sort of benevolent AI that isn't really imposing, doesn't really care too much what you do, but it'll notice if you do something really bad, or maybe it'll notice if you're about to do something bad and it'll kind of like warn you so that you mm. have a chance to change your actions. 
And then if you do do something bad, it focuses on rehabilitating you and, you know, teaching you why what you did was wrong. And like you can mm -hmm. imagine a bene benevolent AI system like that, that mm -hmm. is sort of like almost like your life coach in a way. Okay. Um, but because this is the worst case, in <laughs> yeah. the worst case, it would be like the all seeing eye of Sauron and the, and it would be particularly focused on maintaining the power of the state. And to me, this seems the most similar to the systems currently in China and to a lesser extent in Russia. And when you look at the density of prison population, the US, China and Russia are the three biggest prison systems. And mm -hmm. in China in particular, it's all about re-education. They have these re-education camps. And, you know, it's funny that we're talking about rehabilitation. So you could think of a good version of re-education camps where it's about, yeah. oh, this is actually what's in your best interest to behave well and whatever. Mm -hmm. But the way the re-education camps are in China is it's much more like a brainwashing flavor where you have to sing, you know, national songs for like four hours a day. You have to do hard labor. You have to, you get interrogated about your religious beliefs and told that, you know, God doesn't exist. Why, why do you still read the Quran? Like, I mean, just when you hear or watch these videos of people who have been to Chinese re-education camps, it just sounds like an awful place where you're not able to mm -hmm. think what you actually think. You're discouraged from talking to other prisoners. Yeah. It's really, it feels a lot like 1984 when the main character gets, gets captured and gets put through that whole program if you if you remember that part of the book um, mm. so yeah my worst case scenario is a global panopticon led by a country like china where every action is being assessed on the basis of how good or bad it is not for the individual or for society but for the chinese communist party or for what whatever party is in control. It could be a scenario where the US becomes very corrupt and we have a digital panopticon. So I'm not I'm not trying to pick on China, but they have a system that is already the closest mm -hmm. to my worst case scenario. Yeah. Man. Oh. And and uh, sorry, one other like addendum I would say is that another flavor to the worst case is that if you have connections to the government or powerful people, you can get pardoned and get special treatment. And this already exists to a certain extent when you think about like El Chapo literally could not be kept in Mexican prison because he was too well connected and could just escape from any prison. So he had to come to the US in order to actually be kept safely and not be allowed to escape. Um, but a counterexample is Jeffrey Epstein. It seems very suspicious that he was found dead in his cell right before trial where he would have had to give the names of all the powerful people who had been on the Lolita Express. And the coroner who was hired independently found that the wounds on his neck were more in line with strangulation than with hanging. And his madame, Ghislaine Maxwell, the woman who basically set up all of the you know, all of the young girls who would go on the plane and all of that stuff. She mm -hmm. left the country and we haven't even tried to look for her. It's been like a year and like, we haven't even tried to find her. So clearly uh. people at the top just don't really want to look into that situation much. And so mm -hmm. it does seem like there's sort of two tracks. Like if you're a really wealthy, powerful person, you can pretty much get out of almost anything. Whereas yeah. if you're someone who's not wealthy, not well connected, and if you come from, you know, if you're a, a minority and, you know, other factors, you're likely to be treated very, very badly and not given a second chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that actually starts to touch on what my worst case scenario is, too, because um, I, I agree yours is yours is pretty bad. And, and I think it's just bad in a different way. Um, my worst case is actually sort of what the U.S. system is right now, just on steroids, where basically the prison system becomes a way to, 
like keep people poor and increase wealth inequality and kind of like we were talking about with the what the fuck happened in 1971 like mm-hmm. we it seems like there's some sort of powerful um po- or some group of po- powerful policymakers that actually had that intention of make designing a system to where it kept the poor more poor gave them less rights and we haven't even talked about how the fact that all of this is disproportionately affecting African Americans. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a way, like when I looked at it, the first thing I thought of was like a underground way to just control that population. And a, I don't know, it just, it was very um, sinister when I was looking into this, like the effects of this and who knows if that was by design or just, an end result of a broken system it could be both um or it could be either but i'm well, just I, yeah i mean it's kind of self-perpetuating in that if there starts to be if you start to see that there's more crimes in rough neighborhoods then you police those neighborhoods more so they get arrested more and mm-hmm. then that full that like reinforces the notion that crimes happen in this area and it's just yeah. this cycle where mm-hmm. you just can't get out of it yeah, and I think in the worst case, it just continues to be that. And maybe those cases start to grow. And we see incarceration rates skyrocket, and it's just a way of dividing the country and dividing the people. And mm-hmm. that, that would be my worst case. Is just It's used as a way of dividing and keeping certain people off the streets unconstitutionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, you can't vote if, you've, if you're a convicted criminal. Exactly. So it's a great way to suppress the vote. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> yeah. And if we um, talk like future scenarios, if we were talking um, like all of this seems to be more punishment based than rehabilitation based. And in the worst case, it is all punishment and retribution. Yeah. And, and government controlling yeah. political opponents. Yeah. And um, one illustration of this that we we sort of talked about previously um, not on this podcast but the black mirror episode where oh yeah where someone where this guy is basically given a little chip and in his mind he's lived hundreds of years in hell essentially or by himself in a loop that he can't get out of mm-hmm. and he's like it's only in the real world maybe a couple of days or less that he's in this situation, but he has, his consciousness has experienced this torture for what seems like hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And that, if we extend to the far future and think of what brain machine interfaces could induce in terms of punishment and torture, like this could be it. And then people looking from the outside, it's not obvious that these people are like physically being hurt is just mental. And I think something like that would be actually much easier to pass than anything else in terms of like punishment. And like, we just wouldn't think about how absolutely horrible it would be because it's easy enough to be like, Oh, let's, let's have this person experience a thousand years instead of 10 years. Like, it's just like two extra buttons. Yeah. And it, it I mean, yeah, I don't know how, how likely it is or how close that technological <laughs> achievement would be because you could use yeah. that same technology to basically like live forever in a digital afterlife. So you could see right. good uses of that. So I don't, yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is in interesting when you though. think, yeah. when you think far future, Sam Harris had an interesting thought experiment that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, which is that if there were a pill that you could give to a psychopathic criminal that would make them, no longer psychopathic and it would even potentially make them realize how wrong their prior actions had been and feel tremendous guilt and no longer be a danger at all to society is it ethical to require someone to take that pill by law or is that like changing someone's identity and mental state in a way that's that should not be considered ethical 
Um, that's a good question. I don't have an answer immediately, but yeah. my first instinct is, yeah, we should like get, well, I don't know. It, so my, my instinct is yeah, that it should be a choice. So okay. you could say, okay, you can serve, you know, 10 years or 15 years standard prison, or you can take this pill and be out of here in five days. Like you but, could give someone the choice like that, but you're not going to be the same person. You're going to be a better like... person. <laughs> wow. but, but it's kind of similar to your, your thought experiment, which is that if you could essentially pause time and have someone experience like, you know, 20 years of prison in, a, in an hour, then maybe it's not ethical to force prisoners to do that, but maybe you could give them a choice. Like, you know, you can spend 20 actual years where, you know, whatever you can, you know, have prison friends or whatever else you do, or you can have this accelerated prison sentence where in our time it will only elapse as like one hour or one day or something. But, mm -hmm. you know, you will have subjectively felt like you experienced 20 years and mm -hmm. maybe you get people. But again, to me, that policy would only be effective based on the results. If people that went through it actually ended up being better members of society and healthier and more psychologically mm -hmm. sound. So it's unclear to me whether someone like living 20 years of <laughs> rapid self prison would actually help them rejoin society. Whereas having some sort mm -hmm. of, you know, neurotropic medicine that maybe, you know, somehow inhibits the psychopathic tendencies mm -hmm. of your brain might be something that's actually a good thing if it's, uh, unless it, you know, really changes your identity or, you know, your core, yeah. what makes you a core person. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thought experiment that uh, Sam Harris proposes. Um, I, I still don't really know. It makes sense that it would be a choice, though. I kind of agree mm -hmm. that it should be a choice. Um, so anyways, maybe we uh, move on to the best case scenario now. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about that. Best case scenario. My best case scenario, I actually was thinking of another Black Mirror episode in my best case, which is, do you remember the episode where the Don Draper character does, or John Hamm basically does mm. something bad and then everyone else in society only sees him as like a fuzz yeah, and he's basically shut off from the rest of society? So that's pretty dystopic. So I'm not saying that exact thing is my best case scenario. But yeah. the what I think would be a good place for us to move is a digital prison system where you can essentially give people gates around what they're allowed to do and gradually mm. increase their freedom until they're ready to fully integrate into society. And this mm. has only been possible recently so it's like, you know, would you rather be in prison all day, every day and forget what it's like to actually make a living and be with your family and be a part of society? Or would you rather be able to live your normal life? But if you go outside of one of the approved areas, then an alarm will sound and your corrections officer will be notified and they'll come and maybe your sentence will get extended. So it's, it's mm -hmm. almost like I think we can make it sort of like a video game where there's certain carrots and sticks that are totally dependent on how someone behaves. And if someone is behaving in a good way, then they get rewarded and they can return to society more, more freely. Whereas if someone continues to do bad things, then they never make it to the next level. They're stuck behind mm -hmm. these gates. And that way we can allow people to reintegrate into society and allow people to remember what it's like to be a part of society while also mm -hmm. giving them support around education, addiction therapy, you know, counseling, yeah. job training, mm -hmm. all of these aspects that we know statistically are key for someone to become a functioning member of society again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, and mine, mine is not um, too different. I think that, uh, the first 
in my best case, the first thing we need to do is really fix the fundamental system in the first place, like make it to where people in these impoverished communities that are disproportionately affected by the correctional system, make sure that they have education, make sure that they're safe, make sure that they don't have to live in this state of like heightened cortisol levels all the time, wondering if there's going to be a shooting right on the street or if, if their friend is going to be okay or, you know, anything like that. Like we need to just nip that stuff off like right away. And Mm -hmm. I think that would solve a vast majority of our problems. But then there are still going to be people that do have psychological damage that need to be rehabilitated somehow. And this rehabilitation is what we need to focus on and what we need to understand how to do more effectively. And it's funny you mentioned the psychedelic treatment because that was like part of my best case Mm. scenarios. We actually start using that effectively because you were saying that study was done what in the 60s right like we we need to like really speed along this research and realize that this helps people yeah and we can keep people we can keep the whole public safe by administering these things more often and maybe even create a sort of rite of passage where people can opt into doing something like this with a psychiatrist before being convicted of anything, before committing any crimes. And it can be another preventive measure. Like all of my best case stuff is almost preventive because I, I don't Mm -hmm. want the system to have to really exist in the first place. Totally. Like we should, we should have enough nets in place to catch people before anything happens to where they would be put in the correctional system. And the, you know, this is a very fine line because a lot of that has to do with tracking and it has to do like, we can't do this without enough tracking, without like monitoring people and seeing if they are at risk. So like you were saying, we could have a more authoritarian regime like a China do something like this, that they take preventive measures But like, what is the end result of those preventive measures? Mm -hmm. It's sending people to re-education camps and that's not ideal. So like, you know, we have to toe that line pretty carefully, but you know, this is the best case. And I think that if we do it correctly, we can keep the prison system at a small fraction of the size as it is currently. Yeah. And you know, I, I, that's basically my best case is just, all the preventive measures beforehand and then you know maybe have these really strong rehabilitation protocols for people that don't make it yeah and it's amazing how like it honestly feels like every episode medicare for all universal basic income (laughs) like these things just you know better education like a good education Mm -hmm. for everyone they just help every possible sector of society so yeah but anyways let's go to the most likely most likely scenario Alrighty. yeah what do you think for the most likely i feel very optimistic about the future of prisons which is good so i think the you know, I t- we already talked about how in 2008, that's when the real criminal justice reform movement began. And it has been gaining momentum. There are fewer people in prison now than before. There's a lower recidivism rate, a lower incarceration rate in the US. We still have a long way to go. But my prediction in the most likely scenario is that we will continue to reform, especially because the public is going to realize that We're spending $80 billion per year on prisons in the U.S. And two-thirds of prisoners are returning to prison within three years. That's a horrible return on our investment, just when you think about it from an economic perspective of taxpayers giving money to make people better members of society, and then they're Mm. not becoming better members of society because of the whole misplaced philosophy of the prison system. So I think Mm -hmm. we are slowly coming to realize that we need to change if we're going to have a system that works best for society and for our economy. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think uh, Yuval Noah Harari had a really interesting statement on a recent podcast where he talks about how there has never before been the ability for us to hack humans in the way that we can hack humans now. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like the USSR under Stalin, they were collecting so much information on so many different people. And they had all, they had this whole system of informants who would inform on one another, write reports and send them up the chain. But they were unable to process all that information. They just simply couldn't make sense of all the information that they were gathering. Now, mm-hmm. for the first time in history, we have systems where you can automatically analyze based on a variety of factors who is at risk, who's do, who is a danger to society, who mm-hmm. is uh, you know becoming a better member of society. So yeah. the question is really, how are we going to use this data? Are we going to use this capability to oppress like Stalin did and like China is doing and Russia is doing? Or are we going to use it to truly rehabilitate people and to make society as a whole better? Because 95% of prisoners will return to society at some point. So we better hope that they are better members once they do return. And that is still an open question of which way we'll go. But my prediction is that things are trending in the right direction in the U.S. and we will see continued improvements with criminal justice reform. I like it. Yeah, I think I think for my likely case, we're going to see two different types of uh, systems evolve from this. I think China, for example, is going to start approaching the worst case scenario. And I think mm-hmm. that more open and free countries like um, Northern Europe or um, North America is going to tend towards the best case scenarios. Mm -hmm. Like we have a lot of good research coming out about the psychedelics, for example, about rehabilitation, understanding neuroscience at a deeper level. Like we're moving towards a society where there's actually pretty good understanding of things and a lot of open information. And I think that's key is like actually understanding the problems Because previously in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't the internet to like see what was going on all over the place. Mm -hmm. Now we have social media where we can see firsthand accounts of all of these prisoners that are being treated poorly or all of these people that are just caught in the cycle of the probation and um, like, I guess, you know, the cycle of that. And I think that with all of that out in the public, we're going to get all of this um, figured out. So I think that we can figure it out in the medium term and ultimately long term, we will be good. Um, I am a little bit worried of how this kind of thing might be used for prisoners of war, which is not something we've really talked about Mm -hmm. um, previously. Like we, there might be some pretty insane, something that we can't fathom right now, uh, mental torture, Right, the right. Techniques that well, even solitary confinement is internationally known to be something that's a human rights violation. And yet mm-hmm. in the U.S. prison system, there's no court that has to approve it. It's solely up to the prison, even if it's a private prison, when and how and for how long to use uh, mm-hmm. solitary confinement, which, again, if you... If you cage up a dog and kick it and treat it badly, it's going to become even worse than before you put it in the cage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I really think that we are moving towards a more rehabilitation focused society. I think that we are just becoming generally more enlightened. Like, I I don't want to Mm -hmm. use that term too lightly. You know, it's a very strong term, but we are becoming more aware of our the fact that we are all sort of connected that other people have the same sorts of feelings that we do like we're not the center of the universe and i think just understanding that at a deeper level will move us towards a rehabilitation system and hopefully towards a prevention system so i am optimistic for a lot of the 
more free countries, but not super optimistic about the more authoritarian countries. Right. Yeah, at least in the West, it feels like we created the internet, we had these high hopes of all the improvements it was going to have on society. It turned out being way messier. We're currently in this phase of fighting disinformation and sort of, you know, creating what we originally hoped the internet would become. And I am hopeful that we will move in that direction and we will become more enlightened, not only on the prison question, but on a variety of important questions. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Future of Prisons. Stay in school, stay with your families, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.